Welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show, and uh, it's an honor to bring back friend of the program, very gifted musician and producer, uh, has had an impact on a lot of albums. He probably, it's funny, you know, a lot of times people will not tell you how they really feel, uh, how they really feel about you until they're gone, and then they it goes to the grave with them. So it's just good for cats to... Uh, have a light shined on them uh, for the great work that they do and continue to do. Andre Fisher, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg show. Thanks, Jake. Thanks very much, man. You know, I have to ask you straight off. Um, did you ever cross paths with Wayne Shorter? Uh, yes, a few, quite a few times when he was with Weather Report the first time. Uh, that's when Joe Zawinul was still alive. Right. A matter of fact, this was early on. I think Alex Acuna was even the drummer at the time. Um, uh, yeah, I ran into Wayne, and then um, I remember meeting Wayne at the Bothan Club, that's in San Francisco, and that used to be off of Divisadero uh, near Fell, and. Uh, that's where all the a lot of jazzers came to play. If they didn't play up in the Tenderloin on Broadway in San Francisco, like at the Jazz Workshop, or uh, then it was the Trident and some other places because uh, um, Yoshi's and and uh, and a couple of the other places hadn't even opened yet. Absolutely, this is, this, this is a while back. Um, I mean, did you ever get to North Beach to like Bob City, or was that before your time? Pony Poindexter was holding down court there. Like Eddie Henderson used to jump up. You might have been just a little too young. I know Clarence was going to the Haight Ashbury with Charles Lloyd and Chico. Well, going, yeah. Charles, I knew quite quite a few of them, but I knew them through my uncle because Claire would play at the Matador with Cal Jader. So I'd go visit him there all the time, or we'd go to the Trident. Uh, that was in Sausalito. There was a whole bunch of people there. And when uh, Herbie had his group together, when he was doing Fat Albert Rotunda and uh -huh. uh, The Prisoner, that's when he had Johnny Coles and Joe Henderson and uh, Garnett Brown on trombone. It was Tootie Heath on drums, and it was Buster Williams on bass. Wow. Um, they, they played the both and all the time. And a lot of us stayed in a, a, a lady named Frederica Fleming, who was uh, actually a parole officer for San Mateo County. Uh, had a, 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 a house she turned into a boarding house for musicians. And uh, I wound up staying in that boarding house with Fillmore Jr., uh, with uh, Mickey Roker, and oh a couple of Are you kidding me? No. And then was, it called the, was it called the Happy House? No, it didn't have a name. Yeah. It was just Frederica Fleming's house. And uh, you, you had use of the kitchen, and, um, you know, and she usually had, her choice of musicians. I think that's why she set the house up. Uh, but uh, I remember paying minuscule money to, to, to live in this boarding house. And, and, uh, and instead I saved all my money for clothes. I'd go down on Polk street and buy a um, English double breasted jackets with the high collars and bell. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but that's when, um, that's when groove homes had a, a, a club he was playing at there in San Francisco. 
there was a there was a lot of joints. That's when Winterland and also the Fillmore were still open. And I used what do you to mean? Wait, wait, wait. What club? Um, you got to hit me to this club that Groove owned or ha or had. Um, uh, Jesus, I mean, because we went to... through it all. I mean, there was the both end was a was a serious jazz steady diet of jazz, but like Groove Holmes had a club. I would never heard that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know if he was sole owner, but he he's the one who held it down. That's where we'd all go. That's where, you know, who took me there was Merle Saunders. Um, how did you talk about how you met Merle's very deep in my heart. I've interviewed both his sons. Talk about Merle. Merle, I met because he took Fillmore Jr.'s place with the play big time Buck White. Well, that's uh, now we're going all now we're going back to where it's good. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you um, I just want to go. I want to put something on Wayne here. I, for a 45-year-old who goes to different kinds of music, based on the genre of music, some of the musicians are more accessible than others. And I just wonder at that time, like, was Wayne, did you get a chance to, like, have a conversation with Wayne? He seemed to be a man of few words. It depends on what the fuck you were talking about. It, it, Wayne, there's a lot of people. It's just like, People would complain about Charlie Mingus, or they complain about other people that were mean or didn't have anything to say. No, it's just you weren't talking the right shit. <laughs> you know, you were off into your thing, and they were into theirs. And where you could meet, you know, a, a good musicians will always talk music. They'll always talk, especially if if you talk about somebody you both respect. Right. That's one way to make an icebreaker. Either either that, or if you get a chance to sit in with somebody. They see what you're made of when you sit down. So, so no, Wayne, Wayne, um, he wasn't a super communicator, but Wayne was a very kind man. He gave he gave advice to myself and a couple other musicians. You know, it it, it less is more. I mean, I could make some of those quotes. <laughs> right, right, right. It, you know, because because um, I, I remember. Uh, I remember I met Jules Awanu when he was with uh, Cannibal. And uh, they used to play Don Clendenin's in Atlanta, down on Hunter Street. Uh, uh, from Spellman and Morehouse, there was a club called Don Clendenin's. Right down the street from Pascal's uh, Motor Hotel. That was a, a black-owned hotel, which most of the entertainers stayed at. When they, when they come through Atlanta, that's where they'd stay. And we go to Don Clendenin's, and that's when they were doing Mercy, Mercy. Um, and Walter Booker was on bass. And Joe Zawanu on piano. It was Roy McCurdy on drums. It was Cannibal and his brother. And uh, uh, matter of fact, even a couple times, they brought uh, Earl Turbington to be a guest. He was also an alto player. He was from New Orleans. I know and, that. Um, yeah, that's right. Earl's brother was Willie T from from uh, Willie T and the Mighty Magnificence, the Wild Chapatulas. The uh, Willie was it Willie T and the Gators too. Uh, I don't know. I just, know I just you know, I'm very good friends with Johnny Vidakovich, so he, he he used to worship those cats. Well, well, Walter Booker was trying to break out Earl more into the jazz realm, but Earl he always had problems with women, so uh, he had some busted love affair and some woman broke him out and next thing i saw him he wasn't playing jazz he was in the horn section with bb king 
So it, it was like 360. So there's a there's a lot of folks I'd see coming one way and they'd leave another. Right. It, it's just like Idris Muhammad. I knew Idris when he was in Chicago. And uh, that was that was his name was Leo Morrison at that time. And then when he goes to New York, next time I see him in New York, he's Idris Muhammad and he's doing only jazz. And he, he was sitting in the pit band of hair. So so it, a lot of things change. It's, some musicians who will stick to one genre or that's kind of their thing. And then there's there's a, there's a lot of mercs. There's a lot of musicians who can just play anything. And their whole thing is, you know, as long as it's involved in music, they'll go deal with it, you know. Um, it's just like uh, I remember going to the Cheetah Club a long time ago in New York, and uh, the bouncer was uh, Clayton Filliard. And Clayton Filliard was one of the earlier drummers with James Brown. Wow. <laughs> and he wound up, he wound up, dri he wound up driving the tour bus, too. For the Cavalcade of Stars tour, which it was a Dick Clark tour, wow. it had the Supremes on it and uh, Little Richard and Coasters and and uh, Little Dion and the Belmonts and a bunch of other groups. Uh, I, I remember those days too. Well, a lot of times these old guys too, like Sonny Forrest, who was a guitarist with uh, Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke. I played with him with the Impressions. He was the first guitar player. I played with with Curtis Mayfield and these old guys sit you down and there's two two kinds of guys one who tells you tall tales that always involve him and then the other guy who was spent more time talking to you about all the people that he'd met and all the you know the great great people he'd seen play or perform so I ran into both but there's a, a lot of my elders which uh they they gave me a lot of information and introduced me to a lot of people. And then there's a lot of guys I ran into who, who knew my dad and knew my uncle. So they, they, they kind of took me under their wing and, and just gave me some inside information, you know, as, I, as far I was, as that was, that was the, I'm glad you reminded me. Um, I'm curious about how you connected with, uh, Kurt Tom records in Chicago. Like did Eddie Harris, can you talk about the nexus of how you connected with ultimately Eddie and, and Curtis? First of all, uh, I was in San Francisco playing a big time buck wide. Uh, and I walked up the street to uh, uh, basin street West and it was uh, Richard Pryor at basin <laughs> street. And yeah. the musical act was Curtis Mayfield and the impressions. Oh my God. And uh, uh, after the play was over, uh, one evening I went up and caught the set. And uh, there was uh, two keyboard players. One played organ and the other one played Wurlitzer. And it was Donnie Hathaway. Uh, it was Donnie was musical director for Curtis for that particular gig. And it was Lucky Scott on bass. Um, some guy named Fuzzy was the other guitar. Sonny Forrest on guitar. And then this drummer that rushed. Uh, he, he, okay, so after the, the set was over, I hung around and I had connections with the, the organ player, Melvin Jones. So I start talking to Melvin because Melvin's brother is Harold Jones, the jazz drummer. My dear, my dear friend. I knew Harold because my mom 
uh, knew Sarah Vaughn and my mom knew Conrad McRae and a lot of people. So I got introduced to Harold, you know, years before. Wow. So I knew that was his brother. That was the common point of conversation. And then I befriended Lucky Scott, the bass player, the guy who played on Superfly and Freddie's Dead and all that stuff. So he was he was saying, you know, we can't stand this drummer, you know. Um, uh, and I, you know, told him the different people that I played with. And for some reason, Melvin really was pushing for me. I didn't even know him that well, but he figured if I was a friend of his brother, I must have been cool. So he's pushing for <laughs> And and they said, we got to get rid of this guy. We're getting ready to go to L.A. and we're going to play the Troubadour, which is a big deal because R&B acts don't play the Troubadour. And we're going to play. Rosie Greer had a show at the time. Della Reese had a TV show at the time. Uh, There was a, a, a whole bunch of performances which were to to finalize there at the Troubadour. And that was like a big deal. So I said, um, well, what's the deal? They said, well, we need a drummer right away. And um, if you can do it, you know, after we finish this engagement here at Basin Street, we're going down to L.A. and rehearse, then do those shows. And then we're going back to Chicago. I said, you're going back to Chicago? He said, yeah, Curtis has us going back to Chicago and we're going to totally redo his total catalog because uh, ABC Paramount owns his masters and won't give him his masters back. So there's a couple people interested in, in, in some of Curtis's music for film, but he doesn't want them to deal with the masters he doesn't own. So we're going to go back with Johnny Pate, the arranger, full orchestra, and go recut all these songs. Wow. So we need somebody that can read and, you know, if you're doing this play and doing cues and all that stuff, uh, you know, so come to sound check tomorrow and we won't have the other drummer come and you sit in and we'll see. And they said, do you know any of the impression songs? I knew every last song of theirs because uh, I, I love the arrangements. I like the Johnny Pate stuff. Uh, We're a winner, little brown boy, uh, all, all those tunes I was familiar with. You know, because the the guys I played with, like Al McKay and and the other guys from L.A., I mean, we we played everything. We you could put us in any band; it could be a country band, and we'd kick ass. That's just the way. <laughs> that's just the way we were. That's the way we were raised. We'd make a groove. It didn't matter. We catch a groove if it was a polka band. It didn't matter. Oh, I dig. Now so, you guys were the groove master. Wait, hold on. I got a couple questions. Sure. Um, who played bass? in big time buck white there was no bass player so merle was kind of keep kicking pedals playing left hand bass uh he would do that uh and then he'd play fender Rhodes too there was a guitarist his name was monty ellis Monty uh, Ellis. He, yeah he had a real uh grant green and then he'd do octave stuff like west montgomery but wow. a lot of the things were cues they were musical cues and the cues weren't written by by Merle. They were ones that Phil had left. They were now part of the play. So basically, my part hadn't changed. They just changed, you know, who was the musical director. So so basically, Merle would play organ and he'd play piano. And a lot of them were, uh, um, you know, were cues. They you know, weren't, ex- then, there was an extended pieces or, you know, uh, tunes. Not, 
Not not really. I I call those flash pieces. They weren't extended. They were short pieces. They they were in and outs, and and uh, they were other things. Merle was just real efficient, and he knew how to get the best sounds out of the organ. You Absolutely. Know, Mer- Merle was really good at that. Monty was good. He knew how to get his licks in. He knew the right frequencies to play. He walk around the audit, the, the not the auditorium, but the theater. In other words, we we had to make it sound sweet. We couldn't overpower anything, and but but you had to be real defined. And so uh, I didn't have a big kit. I had eighteen inch bass drum. I had like a jazz kit, and then I had some sound effects things and bells and and uh, some chimes and just a couple of different things, you know, just to make some sound. I dig. I dig. So, um, explain. But Merle, 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 yeah. t- Merle took Phil's place and uh, Phil went back down to LA. And, and uh, I think at that time, his dad might've been getting sick. Fillmore senior was his father who was the vocal coach to Lena Horn and Carmen McRae. Um, so Fillmore senior, uh, they both, they, it's a it was a four it was a fourplex uh they're off of pico and arlington and the the dad bought that and phil lived in the in the one downstairs and phil senior lived upstairs and he lived between la and new york and so phil went back down there and phil had a studio in the back of his yard that he uh, uh built a studio there and people would come by there and do demos and other things but you know that's where I met Steve Kahn. That's where I met Wilton Felder. Uh, I mean, because Phil was also doing jingles for the Charles Stern ad agency, and for Leo Burnett, and I'd play on those jingles. And Wilton Felder, I met him not as a saxophonist, but as a bass player on a jingle. This you know? you're making my day. I do. I love. I, I entered Wilton got a bass from a Jewish bar owner. And the next thing you know, he's cutting commercials and jingles with Andre Fisher in the back of Phil Moore's house. It's unbelievable, <laughs> dude. I mean, the dude uh, also, he, I mean, he, Al McKay, what, is he still with no, us? The, 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 we'd rehearse Phil and I at his place. Where the jingles were cut was actually the Jackson 5 studio on Havenhurst right. out in the valley. That's where we'd cut the jingles for the Charles Stern ad agency. We'd go to the Jackson's house. They, they would rent that studio out uh, at different times when the family wasn't using it. So the, the, the four or five jingles I cut with Phil and Charles Stern were recorded at, at the Jackson Five's house out, out, in, the, out in the valley uh, on, uh, on Havenhurst. Man. This shit goes on, dude. <laughs> no, man. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, I'm just honored to be able to, you, you sort of were, you're providing pieces to a puzzle that I haven't worked on for years. So it's kind of beautiful to come back to it. But I just, uh, with Curtis, um, were there a, any glitches in terms of like, or did you guys lock in right away? First, first of all, they held the sound check the next day. I came. I came up and played. I brought my own snare and hi hat. I didn't like the the whatever the drummer's kit was. I knew the arrangement to all the songs. Uh, when when uh, Donnie showed me a couple things as far as dynamics, I got them immediately. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 even Gypsy Woman, I wound up using brushes. None of wow. their drummers even knew to do that. Wow! So and I played tom toms with my hands. 
you know so they were like <laughs> they said this motherfucker is crazy oh shit <laughs> but, That's but, awesome. but the deal is is i knew all the songs my you know my dad's an instrumentalist but my mother's a vocalist so to me i'm playing the song i knew all the songs so i didn't have any problems as far as uh you know the tempo's wrong or he can't read the chart or uh he's trying to memorize the song i, I don't have those problems uh, and the night before, you know, the, after I left them that evening, I went back uh, to Frederica's record player back at the at the rooming house I stayed at at her home. And 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 everybody had a couple impressions records. So I put I put a few on and I could tell which tracks were done by Lenny and Billy. Lenny and Billy were the two people from the impressions who did We're a Winner and Keep on Pushing. They died in a car accident. That's right. Okay, so those guys, I knew they're playing. But then on Fool for You, that's Idris Muhammad playing drums. That's Leo uh, uh, when he was in Chicago playing. Really? Wow. Fool for You by the Impressions, that's Idris playing drums. So in other words, I I knew styles. I knew uh, the difference. and, And also I could always tell someone who who could make it swing, even though it was funkier in R&B, you could swing because you, you knew that person had played some shangalang at, at an at a earlier time. A little shangalang. No, uh, <clears throat> all right, so so I want you to talk about the recording process. Um, did you guys hit at the same time when you got back to Chicago, when you cut recut all that stuff? Did you do well, the first, rhythm? Tr- first of all, let me tell you that uh, I was acceptable. After the sound check, they let <laughs> good, their drummer, good, good. they let their drummer go the next day. Wow! And uh, I was supposed to give if I was ever going to take a, a rest from the play, I had to give them two to three weeks' notice. Uh, they were highly angry with me. I gave them a day notice, but I had a replacement. I used uh, Fat Eddie Moore, Eddie Moore, the jazz Ed, drummer. Dude, my. Dude, he died on the bandstand of a heart attack. I, I so Eddie Moore was cousins with Merle. That's who took my place. Okay, well they were pissed anyway. But anyway, didn't you? You bounced. You had to go. I, I, I used to hang out with Eddie. I loved Eddie. Oh man. my god, Eddie, dude, Dewey Redmond, all the spirits are back here right now. It's unreal, man. You're making Eddie, it. Eddie was a sweetheart. He took me everywhere. Damn. He took me everywhere, man. I met I. Jesus, man. Uh, and a good friend of his, he introduced me to uh, uh, James Levi. James Levi was a drummer with the Whispers. That's right. And then uh, I knew Freddie, uh, um, Freddie Stewart, uh, um, uh, Sly's brother. brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Larry I'd met. I had a crush on Cynthia, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I met all, I even knew the people... <laughs> I'd go watch the joy of cooking play out in, in Golden Gate Park. I used to see Santana out in the park play. Sure, sure. It, it's just a lot of people, man. And uh, anyway, uh, after that, uh, Donnie was cool. Uh, and I found out Donnie had gone to Howard. He knew some people that I knew that went to Howard. He graduated from Howard with Leroy Hudson, who was a friend of mine, who eventually wound up taking Curtis's place. Whoa, dude. But, uh, but Whoa. but Donnie was out there <laughs> for those California gigs, and Donnie basically after he graduated Howard, Curtis hired him to to arrange and work uh, producer co-produce acts 
that either Curtis was demoing or was going to release on Kurt Tom. And at that time, Kurt Tom was, you know, Curtis Mayfield and Eddie Thomas. Right. And they were distributed by Buddha Records, <clears throat> which was run by Neil Bogart. Okay. And Neil Bogart eventually after that started Casablanca Records. Okay, well, I used to go to the, the Buddha Record Convention in the Catskills with Tommy Smothers. We do blow in the hallway of Vic Damone, um, oh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield, uh, even Wolfman Jack came. Oh, this is so beautiful, man. This is America, man. And, and a group called Motherload had a record called When I Die, which was a Smitty hit. Smith, dude. Smitty. That, that's when I met Smitty. That's when I met Smitty. That's when, after hanging with Smitty, years later, he and I wound up playing with Edda James together. Incredible. And then when he was going with one of the Coolidge sisters. You know? Uh, Mo- yeah, yeah Motherload Mother had that hit. And, when uh, I die. Yeah, when, when I, I die. die. That's right. When I die. And that's also when I met uh, uh, David Foster, who David was playing with the Skylark. Wow. Which was uh, Don Gerard was the lead singer. They did uh, uh, it's like because she's a lady, dream because she's a child. Skylark, uh, um, I forget the, the... Yo, did you did you know uh, any of the like uh, did you know John, uh, John Turk up in San Francisco, Larry Van? Uh, Turk was like playing B3 in one hand with, uh, uh, you know, playing trumpet in the other. Uh, they, it was more Oakland Cats. No. They no. were, I, yeah. I, the, the Oakland Cats would would come over, but basically uh, San Francisco was San Francisco. Were you going to Jackson Sutter? Okay. Jackson Sutter is where Groove Holmes was. Okay. So you're telling me because Jackson Sutter, you're saying Groove had some stake in that in that club. Yes. Wow. Dude, that's the place that Clifford Coulter from San Jose would drive up to see Chester Thompson. It was like B3s all night long. Yes. You know, Herschel I, Davis singing and playing. You probably were there singing and playing. I don't know. Well, that I, that, I know Chester from there, but I stayed in cut, cut when he was playing with, with uh, Tower. Uh, with Phil Collins. Wow. Uh, I knew that. Man, I knew Chester for a long time. You know, um, no, I just, I, I want to get this. So you did go back, you stayed in that band and ultimately you moved, you gave yeah, notice. We, we went, we, yeah, I left uh, immediately the next day. I wound up back in LA, went to say hi to my mom and my brother and sister. And then we rehearsed. Then we did a couple of TV shows. We rented tuxes. We did the Troubadour. Did interviews. I hung out with uh, Tank and Preston Love, who were part of the house band there at the Whiskey. Wow. Um, I was hanging out with Mario and Elmer, the two owners, uh, and uh, hanging out with those guys. But yes, then we drove back to Chicago. I stayed uh, Stony Island Motel. I must have stayed there for months till I finally found a place to live. Lucky Scott, the bass player, and I were roommates. And L- Lucky would eat so much barbecue and pizza and put hot sauce on it that his skin started to turn colors. And he thought <laughs> he had, so I, I had to, I got a taxi and took him to the doctor. 
And he told him no is because of the color of his skin and the hot sauce every night. He was he was dying his fingertips. And uh, he had a oh briefcase. He had a briefcase I thought he'd have music in. And on the inside of the briefcase was a bottle of bourbon, some glasses, a Polaroid camera, and pictures of women who were all about 45 to 50 years old. <laughs> now, luck, lucky, lucky was 24. Okay. Damn. So, what's going lucky on? Said, lucky, said, lucky said, if you see me with a young woman, I'm holding her for the police. <laughs> Dude, what a character. What a character. Uh, but he was a character. But he was a character. But that was a bass playing motherfucker, man. Damn. And and, and him and him and Donnie had fun together. Also, there was a song called Miss Black America, which the impressions wrote for uh, 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 the Miss Black America pageant in New York uh, with a guy who was uh, who was the MC for years at the Apollo. This was his thing. And I remember we played in the orchestra there for the Miss Black America pageant and that's when Diana came and brought the Jackson five. She brought them out as showcasing them. And Donnie was leading the band. And I remember we had an extra guitar player. We had Cornell Dupree. And then it was Cornell. It was, uh, uh, it was um, Sonny Forrest, the older gentleman I told you about. Well, he wasn't that old. Uh, and then it was Melvin Jones on organ, Donnie, the other keyboard, um, it was who else? Uh, shit. Who's who's the guy who, who wrote uh, just the two of us with uh, Bill Withers and, and uh, Grover Washington? Ralph McDonald. Ralph McDonald was on percussion. It's like some Man, sort of. All, it's like all, I'm sorry. This was like an all star. I mean, Cornell and Ralph sitting in. Yeah, but yeah, but they were also session dudes. They they, they weren't all stars to people in town. These were just musicians who worked a lot because they could play well i mean the, the all-star shit came from people who lived somewhere else but when 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 these are people that you play with they're not all-stars they're just either good or bad motherfuckers that's it so you recorded we, in new in new york no uh i'm saying miss black america that kept donnie that's where i found out donnie you know did a lot of the arranging also for the five stair steps and for whoever uh, uh, Curtis was demoing. No, we, we did the recording in Chicago. Johnny Pate came in and we recorded it with the orchestra. Uh, I think it was either, I don't know if it was Universal or Audio Finishers. Right. But uh, we, we did that and we did, uh, um, you know, uh, I'm So Proud, uh, Gypsy Woman. We did all of those. And it's, it's close to the original... Because Johnny was a stickler. That shit sounded great. And uh, it was a good engineer as well. And that's that's when I met uh, Bruce Whedon. He was working at Brunswick. Uh, he was okay. the head engineer at Brunswick. And that's that's also when I got introduced to uh, uh, Richard Evans. It's well, while I was well, the, floor, the floor is yours. I mean, uh, Richard, I talked to him or talked to his wife, and he was not well. Um, he's one of my favorite musicians. Uh, Mine too. And I just wanted you to talk about, I don't know, maybe just, uh, I, I, I have albums with like mandolin players, uh, this guy, Big Johnny Young on Blues Way or something like that. And, and Richard's playing upright bass and it's like the funkiest, greasiest, nastiest thing. And he's not, 
he was not like a complex player. He 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 didn't care about the chops. It it just felt so good. And that yep. is separate from his production and arrangement. So anyway, let's pay homage to that guy. Well, that as well is the fact that he, he's what I call an accompanist producer. He he knows how to accompany things. In other words, he he, he saves the crazy shit for his solo record. Uh, he he knew how to accompany people. I dig, uh, bro. I I love his solo records too. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. that's what he taught me. That's why I produced all these vocalists. Well, give an example uh, of give an example of something that that he taught you that 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 blew your mind. Frequency shelving. First of all, mixes are frequencies, and the reason why some mixes don't line up is because the instrument or the voice that's telling the story is conflicting with an instrument that's only there to accompany. So in other words, you have to save space for the frequencies that are telling the story in your mixes. So he's, he was a producer who stayed in the room when it got mixed. He didn't give it to somebody and come back to see if it was soup yet. He, Richard was, uh, 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 he, he was, he, he he was what most entertainers hate, and that's producers who are uh, micromanagers, because Richard knew everybody's part. In other words, he didn't just know one thing. He knew everything that was going on. <laughs> and not on top of that, he's a Capricorn. So uh, he just he had a certain way about him that that his shit was cool he could he could tell when you were off on the 58th bar but he wouldn't stop the run through he'd wait till it was over take you to the side go to the paper with you and go over it as opposed to he didn't embarrass people in front of anybody else he kept everything very cool very professional dude that uh, is so highbrow man i love it what a class what he, he, yeah. what he told me he said you have to create an environment that's conducive to create in. He said, that's your job as right. a producer. He said, then what your job is to make sure you have everyone's back. In other words, that the, the engineer, everyone else is there contributing to the total story. And he said, what are you selling? And my dad used to tell me the same thing. Richard would, would he'd play me a mix. He said, what am I selling here, Andre? I said, well, you're selling the violin. I said, the melody of that song. I said, this is a fucking Noel Pointer. He said, well, what am I selling with, with this Peebo record, Feel the Fire? I said, Peebo. Yeah. He said, yeah, but I'm going to play you other records that you're going to be confused. He played me some other records that I heard, and I really didn't know what they were selling because the wrong things were up in my face. So I understood exactly what he was saying. And his, his thing about placement and, and feel, and he was just a, a company's producer. I mean, he was excellent for instrumentals, but also, too, um, he, he just had a knack. And, and you get that from also being a player, you know. And his knowledge of the root as a bass player, you know, you have to know what the anchors are. And he always knew what the anchor was. And he, he made me play. He'd take me with him like I was his little brother. 
and he'd get me sessions that he'd be working on and I'd be the drummer or I'd play percussion and the engineers I met, the studios I went to, all of, a lot of these people I'm mentioning to you, just like Phil, they took me under their wing and it's like I was their relative. And they made sure I was exposed to everything I needed to be exposed to. They, they were the sweetest, kindest, uh, uh, unselfish people I ever met in my life. You know, and and uh, I understood why, because they knew that once I got it, you couldn't pray it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, they wouldn't have. They saw that you had the fire and the burn and the, and the talent. They were like and you were hip to it. And you if you understood some of these high level concepts right then and there that Evans was dropping on you, he was already an established cat at that point. Did yes. you guys I, I, a couple questions. Did you used to. Either with Curtis, uh, was there like a, a late night Southside jam session you guys would go to if you were in the studios all day? I mean, he wasn't necessarily, uh, I mean, he was a, a big name guy, but did you guys get out, play live at all? Was there a club down on the Southside? Are you kidding me? Shit, we go, we go to Roberts. Ro Roberts, I, I never knew that the name, yeah. We go to Roberts, and it was Tennyson Stevens on piano and vocals. Oh dear! Oh dear! It was Phil Upchurch on guitar. Oh no! Oh, it, was Richard, no. it was Richard, Richard on bass, me on drums, and Rick Powell on percussion. Whoa, that is disgusting. That's ridiculous. Tennyson was like, if him and Donnie were in the same room, it would sound like father and son. <laughs> That you know, I I just there's just so much a bigger catalog of Donnie to sink my teeth into Tennyson. I just don't even know where to go with him. I just don't know the catalog that well. I just know that in a live setting with Phil and with you, I mean, for Tennyson, Tennyson, his singing. What's what's so funny is, um, you know, Tennyson's always been gay. All right. But what happened for us as musicians who played with him, the women went absolutely insane over him. So if they found out wherever we were staying, oh, fuck. We, we used to have our choice of women because of him. That Dude, that <laughs> is the greatest story ever, man. It's the truth. It's the yeah, truth. It is the truth. It is the truth. Tennis, Tennyson was slick as a brick, man. This, this, this guy, his piano playing was was uh, uh, exquisite anything from i cover the waterfront to uh, uh 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 straight no chaser it didn't matter his 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 hand was so strong even his left hand he could pop a piano string he he was just he was just consummate what a creative person and then, and then Phil, and then, and then you guys just had full. You had all these women at the hotels. You know, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then sometimes Tennyson toured. When I toured with him, he had Louis Large came out from L.A. and played bass oh, wow. for him. Oh, that's so and, great! And, you played uh, with all the cats, man. Well, you know what? Part of that's because Richard said the only way you're going to learn, you got to stick your ass in the door. Right. <laughs> you yeah, right. Right. You you can't always get it by watching. You have, I, it's like same with me in a porno tape. I want to be directly involved. I don't want to be vicariously involved. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. 
so so it it's like that was richard and and especially with with the engineering and him telling me about frequencies and mixing i really i really learned a lot but also from who my family was my uncle claire was a stickler for uh for arrangements and for timbre and how sure. things felt and swung and my dad was a big band musician i grew up hearing hits but oh, boop that did that boob up bam bam to static but you know i came from that so you know you mix r&b with that shit and and some uh uh and some Klaus Ogerman, you, you're fucking crazy <laughs> you know, i want i want to ask you this is really important um yes. so i know you were west coast cats and your dad and and your uncle, you know, you guys. They're different West Coast. They were, they wound up living there. That's what they were. Yeah. So, so I had this conversation with Joe Chambers and he talked about the level of disdain that the, uh, the cats in his mind, the blue note cats, uh, had for, for LA cats for for LA jazzers. They thought LA. No, no, no. I want. I want. I know. I got. I want to make myself clear. So basically, uh, I'm not sure. You, you probably met uh, the late grade uh, writer uh, Stanley Crouch. He said that he told Joe Chambers one time that the real free jazz, free jazz, was the mid '60s Blue Note albums that Bobby Hutcherson, Joe Henderson were doing, and that Archie Shep and Albert Ayler. Uh, they couldn't play changes. They couldn't hold a gig at Radio City. They couldn't back up a singer. Uh, they they played. They were squeaking and squawking. And how? What did what did your dad think about? Because in in reality, the more guys that I talked to, recognized that Shep and and Eiler could easily play changes. They just were bored to death of that shit and wanted to go off in their own direction. But your father Chambers was. Chambers didn't respect them. He was also in competition for gigs with them, but he said they couldn't play changes. There was no tradition, uh, and uh, and they were squeak. You didn't even know what the tune was. They were squeaking and squawking. You take the. How did your dad feel about those guys? The free free jazz. Well, there they didn't have titles for those things. Okay, we, we didn't grow up where there's these categories and totally. that they they got put in a certain drawer. No, it was either good or it was bad. The motherfucker <laughs> can play or he can't. Okay, and my my parents, especially my mom and my dad, they knew if somebody had chops. It's just like when a lot of people would complain about Coltrane. You know, my father would go get a, a, a record or an old tape he had uh, you know, the Johnny Hodges stuff or with with uh, a train playing with earlier miles and and saying, you know, I don't want to hear you complaining just because you don't like what he's doing. The motherfucker can play. Dig, okay. dig. So, I dig, I dig. You know, so so my my parents, because a lot of it, um, a lot of it starts to sound like competition. A lot of it sounds like elitism. And uh, it's the same way they marketed jazz. If you think lowly of it or think it's it's minimum, uh, you, as far as it's worth, then that's how you sell it and that's how you promote it. Okay, when when uh, uh, when people think of something 
in a different light. It's just like Clive Davis when he had Whitney. He told his promotional department, he said, I want everybody's money. I don't want just R&B radio. I want all radio because this is good shit. So when you think in those terms, things are different. You know, it's how things get presented sometimes. It's just like some of that GRP stuff. I mean, right. I worked, I did Diane Sure albums. I did her top selling album, which was Pure Sure, you know, and I, I, I produced the other one where she was trying to, you know, salute other vocalists, you know, and I remember I got some great arranging. I had Jeremy Lubbock and I had Claire. Claire did a good arrangement about Midnight. And this, she, she, she could have rehearsed better because it, it kind of, I, she kind of got red light itis when we got in the studio. Huh. And uh, it it was a little harder to do, um, you know. Plus, by then my communication with her wasn't as good as it was off the first album. By the second album, um, you know, it's it's like you know wondering why people don't have canes or seeing eye dogs, why they still have to be taken to the bathroom. You know that that's, I dig. that's I dig. I dig. that's a that's a sign of something else. Right. Um, Absolutely. Because I got folks in my family who, for all practical purposes, even though they no longer drink, are still dry drunks. In other words, there's still a dependency on on the ability to be not responsible for everything. And uh, that's in life. That's with people. So I'm not going to pin that on a particular person. But all I'm saying is, you know, or somebody comes to me and says, Andre, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Or I, we loved your solo. And if I didn't think it was that cool, I'm going to say thank you and I'm going to be gracious. But when I go home, them them pulling my chain doesn't make me like it anymore. It, it is what it is. You know, and, and people people change their opinions and they, they change their taste based upon does it fit amongst everyone else I'm gathered with. And see, my people didn't care about that shit. <laughs> Especially my mother. You know, <laughs> it's just like I saw a thing on Shaka the other day where people were dissing her because of uh, some comparison they were making about Mary J. Blige's first single, which, by the way, you know, my department at MCA was responsible for helping promote that, which was Sweet Thing on the 411 album. And, uh, I remember Andre Harrell playing that for me and he didn't do any homework. He didn't realize that I was the one that produced the original record. So when he played me, Mary J. Blige, he's hyping me on it. And the first thing I noticed is Mary was flat. And so Shaka mentioned that. I think somebody interviewed her about comparing the two. And the first thing Shaka said is, yeah, I told her it was flat. And they said, what? She said, yeah. But she said, I I didn't I didn't tell anybody in, in the press or in the public. She said, I told her to her face. <laughs> wow. I so I just it. laughed my ass off because Shaka wrote the fucking song. So in other words, if you're gonna ask her about a song she wrote and sang and made a hit, if you're gonna do a cover of it, you got to kill it. You got to kill it. Same why Aretha was funny with other singers. If she met a singer she thought could 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 kick ass, she was okay with them. You know, uh, it it just depends. There's idiosyncrasies, man. But in this society, things are turned into competition. So who's better than who? Who plays better than that? 
It's always you know, that way. It's all. It always turns immediately to that shit. Yeah, but that's bullshit. That's like the same. It is bullshit. I agree. And killed, and killed Indians. You know, that's some European bullshit. You know, it's it, it, enslaving some motherfucker. How boring. How boring. The only way I can be up is that you got to be down. Is that that is the stupidest shit I've ever heard? I've ever heard. You know. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, can you talk about the the best? All I'm saying is the best musicians I know don't play that. And and it's so funny because when I heard some of your interview with uh, Al McKay, Al's Al, I I don't know if he's forgotten a couple things, but Al to me is responsible uh, for a lot of things. Okay, and, I want to stop when, you right there. Hold on, I want to stop you because I God bless. I've never I want I don't know where he is. I've never interviewed Al McKay. So you talking about Clarence? Who are you talking about? I'm, I'm talking about Al McKay. I okay. So whatever interview it was, it wasn't me because I've been trying to. Is he still around? I mean, I'd love to interview him. Are you kidding me? Al was was uh, in the, not just the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. I he love the in, dude. Yeah, he was in, with the, with the second reincarnation of Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then the other Earth, Wind, and Fire that signed with Columbia that Maurice had. He he was in LTD when when the uh, Osborne brothers first took up because Jeffrey was playing drums. Wow. Okay, he was. He was all over the place. Al is, uh, oh, geez. Now, Al, Al knows jazz, but Al was always brought the funk. He always brought the, <laughs> the, 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 the glue. Al's the uh, glue. Man, man. You know, but anyway, but that, but that was our thing around L.A. too. There was a drummer named Valor. There was a, a, a Ralph. Yeah, Valor. Then there was a, a, a pianist named Ralph Shuckett who played a lot of jazz, and I think he was going to UCLA at the time. That's when Lou Alcindor was going there oh before before he changed his name. Right. And and we'd go uh, to After Hours Jazz down on Crenshaw, and off Slauson there'd be After Hours joints. We'd go sit in. Richard Dorsey was the organ player. Um, Charles Kennard? Did you see Kennard at all? Uh, what, the organ player? Charles Kennard, my man, yeah. I had to have. Yeah, I knew that because I mean it was all Red Fox and Calvin Keys and James Gad. I mean those cats were like well, everybody. Cal was, Calvin yeah. was less LA and more Omaha. Absolutely, I'm just saying he he was talking about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, but just that that was an incredible time. Uh, yes, Gadsden well, said he walked seventy blocks to get to fucking the jazz club, well, and then they say go home. You're not you know you're too you're not gonna play. You know go home. Well, six, you know sixty. 3, 64, 65, 66, 67. Those were shit, man. Then there was the Underground Musicians Association, UGMA, and then Horace Tabscott. Uh, in oh, Los my God. Let's oh, wait, 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 slow down. UGMA? I've never heard. Where are you? What are you talking about? Underground Musicians Association. <laughs> Who was in this union, man? This is unbelievable. That's, that's Horace Tabscott. Okay, so that uh, I thought it went under a different name that I'm blanking on right now, but uh, it, it it may have. Yeah, uh, UGMA could have been Chicago, but all I know is what it means. But I remember Tab Scott rehearsing at Grant's Music Center off of Venice near Arlington, and Charles Tolliver was playing with uh, Gerald Wilson at the time, but he was also playing with Horace. Wow! There was the the Arthur Black 
We call Bob, it black. Was Bobby, was Bobby Bradford Al, around? Al, alto player. Uh, uh, Bobby Bradford or Bobby Bryant? Bobby, Bob, well, both, both of those cats, and John Carter too. Yeah, well, uh, they probably were. I re, I remember a few key people, yes. but Horace had a serious uh, avant-garde band. Were you ever? Uh, it, did you ever play with Horace at all, or no? Yeah, I sit in with the band all the time at Grant's Music Center. Okay, so let's talk about this. So that was, and so, did your pops come to hang with, and see that? And that's, he must have loved. He must have been tight with Horace. No? no, my father never came to anything. No, none of my football games, none of my performances, nothing. Uh, he came in some later years, but um, uh, that that didn't bother me. It, sure. It's, I already knew where he was at with me, so is uh, I wasn't trying to do things to get his approval. Be- I did because that 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 happened at home. Passing mustard at home was harder than on the street. So I already knew I was cool with pops. You know, I see, Dad. Did you see me? I I didn't have to do that. I was <laughs> talking more about like the the music itself. Like, it did was it something that uh, that came natural? No, to you to- I have I have a father. It came to my John Burroughs Junior High in the ninth grade, and he wrote me a song for the talent show and all the parts for all the musicians to play. Conducted it and rehearsed it with it, and we went and performed it. That's the father I had. That's intense. That's very okay, intense. Okay, so yeah. it was called Dande Esta Manana, and it wound up on, uh, uh, on one of the albums that my dad did. And then another song he, he wrote for, for, his, for his kids, one for me. Uh, he orchestrated and it got on one of uh, uh, Claire's albums, you know. And then my pop was orchestrating. He was doing copy work. He was playing. He was doing all kind of shit, man. You know, I, I used to go to uh, TTNG. I used to go to NBC Studios. It used to be where the home bank building was across from Wallach's Music City on uh, on on Vine Street. You know, I went I went to all the studios. I, I I used to see George Shearing record. Claire was producing. I saw the Hylos. I saw Cal Jader. I I knew all of those folks. You know, and Bud Shank and Lorindo Almeida in and Gilberto Gil. I went with Claire to Brazil and uh, got off a plane where we were still getting off at the tarmac and not walking the tunnel. You know that the, the thing that connects to the plane. Sure. This is this is before that. Okay, before they had the connecting thing, and we you get off on the tarmac and walk in. You know, at the bottom of the plane. Well, there's 200 people with signs as we walk towards the, the 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 main building, and I thought they were there for somebody on one of the planes, somebody in government or somewhere. They were there for Claire. Wow. Okay. The, he took me to studios there. I met Elisa Regina. I met uh, I met Jorge Dalto. Yes, I met, man, man, I was so freaked out from Brazil. I I'd sneak and drink cachaça. <laughs> I get I get fucked up. <laughs> and, and my 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 father uh, my father knew what was happening. But he he clamped down on that. He said, "No, you can't handle that shit." He said, "Brazilians have trouble handling it." So I'm. <laughs> but but Claire took me so many places, man. 
and you know, it, and it's funny because when they drafted my uncle, they drafted him into West Point as assistant choral director. Okay, who in the fuck gets that? All right. So in my own in my own family, oh, I remember. I remember playing a song for my dad and he listened to it and he said, you know, son, the difficulty factor is not that high on this particular song. And I looked at him and I said, dad, dad, it's a lullaby. And he said, oh, oh, oh okay. It's, it's okay then. You know, I'm like, what the fuck? No, you said that, you told me that story in set one. Um, you know, I, uh, I, 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 let's, let's, uh, let's continue this, uh, I have to go pick up my daughters right now. So okay, let's, you, let's... we we got past the impressions. All right. No, we're doing but great. I, we... I mean, I'm I'm just like feeling. I mean, Eddie Moore, Merle Saunders. Uh, I mean, you're, I know we're disconnecting, but like, I interviewed his sons. I've interviewed Bill Vitt. I've interviewed all the hippie cats that played. I mean, all the all the cats that you're talking about is stuff that I was on an adventure on ten years ago. And yeah. so now you're filling in these pieces like. Big time Buck White, like Chuck Rainey was on that in the New York side. Yes. Like that's how he knew Merle. So like yep. all this stuff is, it, it, you're, you're, I'm really enjoying it. And we haven't, we, you know, we still got so much more to do. Well, you know what, who'd also come visit the play was Hugh Masekela. Really? Uh, Mary McKeeba came by when she was in town. You know, uh, there's also the guy who did a lot of, uh, uh, some, some, uh, um, uh, wrote Grazing in the Grass. His name was Philemon Howe from South Africa. They were all stranded here after they'd done the 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 the, the New York Fair with Olin Tunji. They were all a lot of them were sponsored by Langston Hughes. <laughs> yeah, and dude, they, you're blowing my. I mean, you're blowing my mind right now. Yeah, and then well, we still got to talk about. Uh, although you probably didn't cross paths with him all the time because he's a fellow drummer. She sticks Hooper. Wayne I know. I don't know. No, what I'm saying is like, yeah, I, yeah. Sticks won't talk to me, dude. He, he, he. Like, I've interviewed all the Crusaders, man. All rest in peace. Wayne, Wilton, Joe, Sticks, just hiding in the weeds, dude. You know? Why? I, dude. You know what, man? Maybe you can help me out, like, cause you know what, like, I'm having such a ball on this mission, but like, really, man, like, to me, like, I just kind of like how, in 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 my mind, you are somebody who has always been kept gratitude in his heart and sort of recognized that um, there's a lot of luck involved in the whole process. There is, there is, but if you, if you don't show up, if you don't walk through the door, get it, your ass through the of, door. No, I, dude, I'm sight. with you, bro. I, that's it. That, that was the best out of sight out of mind. You dig. And sometimes even if you're not, don't have the best technique in the world, they still know they can count on you. That's you right. Know? They'll they'll give you time to catch up as long as they know you're true. You know, there's a lot of opportunities that have happened for me because I keep my word. And there's a lot of vocalists that called me, and and the reason why I was their musical director or produced records on them because they knew I'd make an atmosphere which protected them. Dusty Springfield never wanted to stop recording because she she got an environment work when we worked together that was more protective than her own life was at the time and she said it she said i wish they could go on forever i said but dusty this is not real right you know this is not how it's supposed to be and then i remember you know three four days later i had to go by the hotel she 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 had to be rushed to the hospital from an od she almost killed herself 
she was freaked out because, you know, people didn't know Dusty was gay. She had a, a lover up in Toronto, was in a group called Rough Trade, a rock group. And she was like an old man with a young woman who was with someone he he thought was too promiscuous. Well, that's how she felt about her girlfriend. So she's constantly worried about what this fucking girl was doing back in Canada. And she was driving herself nuts. So I'm busy trying to chill her out because we're there trying to do a project, but her personal life was fucked. Okay, so the, the, the project became cathartic just to chill her ass out, you know? But to have to deal with that or cop an attitude and she kicks over a... a uh, 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 a special, a special microphone I buy, I, I borrowed from uh, um, uh, I forget the owner of uh, Oceanway Studios. You know, he let me borrow this great vocal mic, and you know, she's she's mad about something, and she kicks the microphone over. I said, "Oh fuck, no! <laughs> you're not, you're not gonna fuck with this equipment because this is the shit." All right. So I remember sitting there having an argument with her, and and my boss at the time was Neil Portnow. It was 20th Century Fox Records. I was vice president of writer development with Ronnie Vance uh, for the publishing company. I just finished doing Brenda Russell's first album with Only for One Night and So Good, So Right on it and all that shit. And they hired me off the strength of that record to help develop artists. We signed James Ingram and Bruce Hornsby. (laughs) Man. There's mileage on these fucking feet, but you got to show up. You got to show up. You have to be grateful. You know, you 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 have to genuinely. You can't befriend somebody. You have to be a friend to somebody. You know, and because all of us are people, and my as my mother would say, you know, Jackie Onassis, you still got a shit shower and shave. Absolutely. You know, so that that was the our attitude. That was our attitude. So if if you came funny, you got funny right back. My family, Claire, Claire was. <laughs> yeah, Claire well, no, was, listen, we'll uh, let's do we'll do it again. Let's get together soon, man. It's just I'm having a ball, and it, it's well. I'm uh, gathering this stuff up because I got to write all this shit down. You know, I, I know. Gotta, no, I know it's good. It's good. This is very important. You know, I I got to put pictures with, but but Merle was a sweetheart. Uh, that's why Jerry Garcia loved him so much. He was a very unselfish musician, man. Okay. Bless you, Andre. Yeah. Bless you, yeah. man. I'll talk to you really soon, man. Okay, go, go get your daughter. Yeah, be cool, man. Uh, thank you. You too, man. Take care of yourself. Bless you, brother. Peace. Bye-bye.